Right. Hey, Salt City. For those of you who don't know me yet, my name's Drew Stevenson, and I'm excited to dive once again into the book of Ecclesiastes with you all this morning. So we opened Ecclesiastes last week, and we saw that it's a little bit of a strange book. But we're going to get a little bit different angle on life this morning, and we're going to see that in a sense, life is like a picked flower. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that it is both beautiful and broken. So you think about the image of a picked flower. You know that when you get a flower from somebody, that within a few days or a few weeks, that flower is going to be dead. But you also appreciate it as a gift. And I was reminded of this the other day when I was on a bike ride with my daughter, Aria. And at one point, there was sort of fork in the path. And I was running, and she was riding her bike. And she said, Daddy, can I go that way? And I said, sure, that's fine. I'll go this way, and we'll meet in the middle. And so I went the other way, and I was standing there waiting and waiting and waiting for my daughter, Aria. And then finally, after a while, she came around the corner, and I noticed that she was holding something in her hand. And she had stopped on the road and had picked up a flower, an almost dead flower. And we were trying to arrange it on her bike so that she didn't have to hold it in her hand because she was kind of pushing her bike, kind of struggling. And she placed it in the front of her bike. And then she decided that wasn't a good place for it. So she was holding on to it with the handlebars because it was important to her that she brought that flower home. And because although the flower was broken, to her it was beautiful and it was a treasure and it was worth taking home. And our lives are like that. What we're going to see in Ecclesiastes this morning is that your life is a broken and beautiful gift. And so we're going to see from the passage three lessons about the gift of your life the first one is that you can't escape your life. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 17 and read to chapter 2, verse 3. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So what we get here is sort of a personal testimony from Solomon. He's saying, I started off on the path of wisdom. And then what happened is I got really tired and really sad. What he realized was living a wise life is hard. And so he got sad about it. And his heart was filled with vexation, just this sense that things weren't right in the world and that even his wise life wasn't getting him the gain that he wanted. So he's like, I got an idea. 
instead of trying on wisdom, I'm going to try on pleasure. This is some of your life story. For a while, you tried to be the good kid, tried to do the right thing. After a while, you're like, you know what? It's not working. It's not worth it. I am going to try the party route. Solomon, because he was so wise and so rich, was really good at the party route because he could get anything that he wanted. And so after this passage, if you begin to read on in chapter two, you can see all of the things that Solomon tried out. He tried out laughter and joking. He tried alcohol. He tried architecture. He tried art. He tried music. He tried sex. He tried gold and money and precious jewels. He tried gardens. He tried food. He tried servants and he tried slaves. So he had anything and everything that anyone could ever want. And all along, he's asking this question What is good for men and women to do during their life that will make them happy? So he, he says throughout this passage, he didn't lose his sort of perspective and his wise mind. He didn't fully give himself over to the pleasures. He was giving himself over to the pleasures as sort of a test for his own heart to find out for all of humanity what would make a person happy. And here's what he says. Chasing after pleasures is like chasing after the wind. You'll just keep chasing. When you chase after pleasure to satisfy your soul, what you'll find is that it's like chasing the wind. You'll run and run and run. You'll get tired, but you'll never catch up. What I want you to notice at this point is that Solomon isn't using the category of sin. He's not saying all of these things are wrong, although some of them are wrong. What he's saying is this is not a wise way to live life. He's saying you don't even have to be a Christian to understand this. If you chase after pleasure, it will not give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. So just take one example. Later on in the passage, he talks about having concubines. Okay, so you have to imagine Solomon is an ancient version of Hugh Hefner literally has thousands of women who are having sex with him whenever he wants to, who live in his home. But if you think about a concubine, the idea of how, having thousands of women to have sex with is an admission that sex will not satisfy you. Because if sex satisfied you, you wouldn't need thousands of women. You just need one. And so what's true is that having a lot of anything is an admission that that thing in and of itself does not satisfy you. And all of us, our hearts are like this. We think if I just had a little bit more, then I would be satisfied. If I just had a little bit more money, or I was just able to have sex with a few more people, or if I was just to have a bigger house, then I would be satisfied. But we know 
from our past experience and we can see from a testimony of a person like Solomon that it's not true. And yet we keep on chasing after it. I was thinking about this and I was thinking it's kind of like thinking that you can escape from prison by going to the cafeteria or going and lifting weights in the courtyard or going and playing basketball on the court that seems to always be in the movies when people are in prison. Now, it might be enjoyable to eat a good meal while you're in prison, or it might be enjoyable to get some good exercise, but if you start to believe that you can escape from prison by doing those things, you're out of your mind. And likewise, if we think that we can escape from the absurdity and unsatisfying nature of our lives by seeking after pleasure, we will be looking for a long time and left not more satisfied with our lives, but paradoxically actually less satisfied. Have you ever found this? That when you begin to chase after pleasure, you find that what initially brought you pleasure doesn't bring you pleasure anymore. When you actually begin to chase after those things, the harder that you chase, the more elusive that it is. It really is like chasing the wind. I got a text message from one of our elders this week as he was diving into the book of Ecclesiastes. He said this related to how Ecclesiastes is working in his own soul. He said, I have a growing enthusiasm for our Ecclesiastes series. The message strikes at the deeply rooted and flawed belief that sin will satisfy me, including good paths like marriage and kids, etc. Guys, we need this message. We need to remember that even if we had what our hearts desire, that those things would not satisfy us. Because the pleasures in our lives are meant to be like a trail of crumbs that leads us to God. It's not more and more and more that will satisfy us, but it's actually turning away from those pleasures and turning to God himself. Guys, I found this personally in my own life. I remember when I was getting married, I think I believed something um, that I would call the sexual prosperity gospel when I got married. And, and I basically thought, I was told that, you know, you can't, you got to wait to have, have sex. But when you get married, then it's going to be worth it because sex is going to be this sort of all satisfying experience. And do you know what I found? I've actually found that that's not true. I have a great marriage. I love my wife. But what I found is that sex, even in God's intended place, 
doesn't bring the ultimate satisfaction that my heart longs for. And so I find in myself this deeply rooted belief that if I would go somewhere else for sex, maybe that would bring me satisfaction. You know what? It's not true. It's absolutely not true. Because sex was not meant to satisfy me. Only God was meant to satisfy me. And we all have these deeply rooted beliefs based on our past. We run to different things. We run to different sins. And what we find is that chasing after those things is like chasing after the wind. So you can't escape your life through your pleasures. It's also true, says Solomon, that you can't earn your life through wisdom. You can't earn your life. So going on in chapter two, says this. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So remember, Solomon had started off living with wisdom. And then he decided, hey, I'm going to try out pleasure. And now what he decides is, that was stupid. I'm going to go back and I'm going to try out wisdom again. Because he notices that living life through pleasure is like living life in the darkness. He says, you know what? I'm tired of living in the darkness. I'm tired of walking around just being guided by my own desires. Some of us ex have experienced this before, being guided by, by our own desires. It doesn't lead us to more and more fulfillment. It leads us to feeling like we're walking around in the darkness. But he says, living by wisdom is like living in the light. To live by wisdom is to find satisfaction and joy. And so some of us say, great, he came back. He was living this sort of stupid life of chasing after his own pleasures. Now he's come back, end of story, he's good, he's cleaned up his life again. But this is where a lot of people stop and they only come to a superficial reading of the Bible. And their understanding of Christianity is something like, be wise and your life will go well. The reason that your life is not going well is because you've made a lot of stupid choices. The reason that my life is going well is because I've made a lot of very wise choices. Here's what Solomon notices to debunk that way of living life, that way of judging others, and that way of reading the Bible. 
he says, when I walked around the world, I noticed something really absurd. The same thing happens to both the wise and the foolish person. Here's what he's saying. Wise people's kids walk away from the right paths. Wise people get divorced. Wise people die of cancer. Wise people in an act of indiscretion commit adultery. Here's what Solomon is saying. Wisdom does not protect you from the absurdity of life. You can't escape the absurdity of life. You can't gain God's favor by being a good little boy or a good little girl so that he will bless you in such a way that you will escape the pain of living life under the sun. So here's Solomon's conclusion at the end of all this, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's looking out at the world, and he comes to this conclusion. You want to know what he says? I hate life. Do you guys know that that is a biblical statement? That is a statement made by a person who is led by the Holy Spirit. If you look out into the world and you see the brokenness, I mean, you see children starving. You see people, young people dying of COVID-19. You see people that are oppressors and treating people horribly, and they're living in luxury, and it seems like their life is going well. What you should say as a godly person is not, oh, looks like the wise people are getting treated by God with blessing and the fools are getting punished. No, what you should say is, I hate this. This seems absolutely absurd because the world doesn't give you the message of the Bible. It gives you a conflicting message. It seems like often that God is absent. It really looks like if you just observe the world, like everything has gone to absolute crap. And so sometimes, like in this situation, it's very appropriate as you're watching the news, you should be biblical and you should just watch the news and you should just be like, I hate life. I hate it. I hate the way that this world is. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is not how God intended it to be. And everything is so messed up and I just hate it. Because if you live long enough, what you see is that life is not clean. Good guys don't always win here. But wicked people prosper and wise people die too early. I was reminded of this when I was thinking back about two of my middle school teachers. So one of my middle school teachers, Mr. Heath, participated in something called the scriptorium. Yes, there's something called the scriptorium. Mr. Heath would memorize entire books of the Bible and go to the scriptorium and say them from memory in front of an audience of people. And he would go, and he had so much scripture memorized, 
that he would actually do like four books of the Bible. So he would stand up in one day and recite the book of John, the book of Romans, the book of Hebrews, and the book of Philippians from memory. The guy walked to school every day so he could get some prayer time in. He was a great teacher. He would spend time with us during our lunch hour playing basketball, and his life was so evidently pointing other people toward Jesus. And a few years after I graduated from high school, Mr. Heath died early of cancer. Contrast that with another one of my teachers, Mr. Page. Mr. Page was a nice enough guy. He always dressed really cool for like the 60s and 70s dance that we had in middle school. He was our school guidance counselor. And he lived a long, sort of prosperous life. And I found out a short time after I graduated from college that they flew a helicopter over Mr. Page's house and that in his backyard, he was growing large amounts of marijuana. Mr. Page did not die of cancer. Mr. Page went on and lived a nice, prosperous life. But here's the difference. Mr. Heath was memorizing pages of his Bible. Mr. Page was rolling doobies with the pages of his Bible. And you look at that and you're like, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. It seems like God is prospering a very wicked man and he is punishing a very good man. And when you look out at this, you're like, what is God doing? And I don't know what he's doing. I, I don't have the answer to the question, but I know one thing that this makes me think about, that makes me consider about my own life, is that I can't earn my life. In other words, I can't clean up my life enough. I can't be a good little boy enough that God will bless my life. Because what the Bible teaches is the sun shines down on the good as well as the evil. In other words, God doesn't bless people according to their works. He blesses us by something called grace. God is a God of grace. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve under the sun. And so there's this opportunity that we have when we see that we didn't earn our life. What we can't do is we can't sit back at our dinner table when we're having a nice meal or we can't look at our house or we can't look at our well-behaved kids or we can't look at all the advantages we have in life and we can't sit back and say, I did this. I worked really hard because what's true is that something really absurd could have happened in your life. And so we see that life is a gift. So that's where we're going to land on this. The third observation about life is that because it's a gift, you can enjoy your life. So Solomon says, okay, I tried out wisdom. I tried out 
pleasure. So then he begins to ask this question, Ecclesiastes 2, 22 through 25. He says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Here's his conclusion. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So here's what Solomon's saying. In the midst of the sorrow and the vanity and the toil and the work, and the paths that we run on that end up being foolish. What do we do? We sit down at our table. We get our food. We get our drink. We sit in our house or in our apartment. We look out off our balcony or we look off into our yard. And this is what we say. We say, thank you. So we've been observing that life is a very broken, absurd place. But I've got good news. God is still here. That's what Ecclesiastes has been leading us to up until this point. This is the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes that the name of God is mentioned. And it's not mentioned in sort of redemptive, God forgives you or cancels out your sin sort of way. It's mentioned in a God sits at a table with you. In fact, he gave you the table. He gave you your food. He gave you your drink. He gave you your family. He gave you your life. And so one of the most Christian things that we can do in the midst of this global pandemic is we can sit down at our table we can eat and we can say thank you to god and that's because we can stop striving for god's approval and we can stop trying to escape our lives and instead by faith we can receive our life as a good gift from our heavenly father you see that that broken flower that picked flower has been handed to you by god himself and the reason that he has given you your life yes it's it's broken and yes absurd things happen but he's given you that flower because he just wants you to look at it and say thank you what a wonderful gift and when i was thinking about people in my life who have demonstrated this one person came to my mind almost immediately his name's marcus key i think mark marcus and and his wife jenner have been watching our online service so but marcus lived down the hall from me when i lived in muncie indiana melissa and i were newly married he lived in our apartment complex and marcus was from kentucky and so marcus knew how to just enjoy life and marcus had this big fish tank 
in his apartment. And every once in a while, when I was a little bored, I'd just walk down, knock on his door, and I'd go in, and he had these two chairs, probably from Goodwill, kind of these old chairs. He'd go down, he'd grab me a beer, he'd get a beer, we'd sit down, and you know what we do? We just watch fish swim. Just watch the fish swim. Just watch them fish swim around the tank. And he had a way of talking about the fish. Like I, I just I like that fish. You know, I like having a fish tank. And he'd he'd just be able to talk about fish. And, and what he was saying was, this fish tank, this is a gift from God. These two chairs that I got at Goodwill, these are gifts from God. This beer, I don't know what kind of beer it was. Maybe it was a Coke, something like that every once in a while. It's a gift from God. And so one of the best things that I can do in my life is I cannot worry about getting a bigger apartment or a bigger house or a bigger fish tank. But instead, I can just plop my butt down in this chair, get my drink, look at my fish tank and say, thank you. This is great. And so here's what I think God is calling us to do in the midst of just our ordinary existence in life during this time is to enjoy the little things in life. I hope you have been enjoying the little things in your life because those things are a gift from God. And we have this tremendous opportunity during this time to see the little things in our lives as a gift from God himself. So for example, my kids and I were out in the backyard and I've been making fires. I've got this little stainless steel fire pit that Melissa got me for Christmas. And so I've been making fires in that little fire pit and I'm out in my backyard and I'm making a fire in the fire pit and we're going to have some s'mores. And I walk over to get a piece of firewood and I look and in the mulch, I see an eye poking out. And it's just this little bunny hiding in the mulch. And I was like, oh, this is so great. God put this bunny there. He loves me. He wants me to enjoy this. And so what did I do? I told my kids that the bunny was there. And you know what they did? They spent the next hour picking up bunnies, chasing them around. The bunnies were hiding under the stairs. They were laughing. And you know what I was doing? I was sitting in a chair next to the fire. The fire's blazing. The kids are running around. And I just sat there and I said to God, thank you for this yard. Thank you for those bunnies. Thank you for this wood. Thank you for this fire. You know what else I've been doing? I've been laying in my backyard just looking up at the trees. You know, I used to do this when I was in college, but there's these big old trees in my backyard. I've just been looking up and just wondering, I wonder how many branches are on that tree. You know, I never looked at this tree that hard before. You know, I've been walking the same loop almost every day, sometimes twice a day, just walking, just looking at, at God's creation, just saying, thank you, God, for my life. A couple days ago, I put out this little blue swimming pool for my kids, and I put these little plastic rings in the swimming pool, and I thought, you know what? This reminds me of that one game where the fish open their mouth, and you can, you know, stick the little magnetic thing in the fish's mouth and pull them out, and so I, I took uh, you know, a wire hanger. And I made little hooks out of the wire. And then I, I got pieces of string for all my kids. And I, I hooked the little hook onto the piece of string. And then I tied it onto a stick. And I gave them to my kids. And, and for an hour and a half, 
they sat around this little pool catching these plastic rings and being so excited. And I just sat back and I said, thank you, God. You gave me that wire hanger. You gave me that wood. You gave me that string. And I'm just thankful for my life. Even though at times I want to escape, even though at times it seems absurd, I am thankful for my life. And so I would encourage you, be thankful for your wife. Be thankful for your husband. Be thankful for your kids. Be thankful for your weird roommate. Be thankful for your coffee cup and your table because all of those things have been hand-delivered to you by our good and gracious Heavenly Father. And let's not forget, we have a lot to be thankful for. Let me end this way. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3 reminds us that this is the posture that God wants us to have because we're believers in him. We believe that he is a good, gracious God who wants to give his kids good things. And here's what he says in Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. He says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? and your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. You see, there is something that you can't earn. There is something that is not connected to this world and the pleasures that the world offers that will actually satisfy you. And what is that? It's a covenant relationship with God. You can have a relationship with God that is so close that it is like marriage, where you share your heart with him and he shares his heart with you. And you leave that relationship not feeling like you're chasing the wind, but like you just ate the most delicious meal in the world. And yet that is accessible to you right now. And so you can sit down right where you're at and you can say thank you for your beautiful and your broken life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have not withheld anything good from us that we need. Thank you that we can't earn our life. Thank you that we can't escape the inevitabilities of life. And we thank you for that because it leads us back to you. And I just ask that in the midst of suffering and pain and heartache, the real things that we hate about life, that we would be able to just sit down today, that we'd be able to look at all the good gifts that you've given us, and that we would be able to say thank you, believing that you are a God of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.